The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress. Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Laura Militello from Applied Decision Science. And I'm Brian Moon from Perigee and Technologies. Today we welcome Jan Martin Schragen. Jan Martin is Principal Scientist at TNO and also a Professor of Applied Cognitive Psychology at the University of Twente in the Netherlands. His research interests include resilience engineering, team communication processes, and human-machine teaming. He is the lead editor on two influential volumes. So Cognitive Task Analysis came out in 2000, and I think that was the first book devoted to that topic. And then also Naturalistic Decision-Making and Macrocognition, which came out in 2008, and th this one captured uh, some of the best papers from the NDM meeting that Jan, Mar Jan Martin hosted in Amsterdam. He is also co-editor of the recently released Oxford Handbook of Expertise, which uh, both Brian and I contributed chapters to. He is editor-in-chief of the Journal of Cognitive Engineering and Decision-Making. And for those who don't know that journal, it's a non-traditional journal that was created uh, specifically as an outlet for the types of non-traditional studies that NDM researchers tend to do. Dr. Schragen holds a PhD in cognitive psychology from the University of Amsterdam. So welcome, Jan Martin. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start and uh, go back in time and ask if you can remember the first paper that you ever published and tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Um, so the first paper I published was a paper in memory and cognition in 1988, and it was on visual working memory in young children. Um, it was based on the work that I carried out as part of my master's thesis in Manchester, England, with Graham Hitch and Sebastian Halliday. And actually, the paper was mostly written by Graham Hitch, so I need to be modest about the writing part. Um, but all the experiments reported in that paper were carried out by myself. Uh, I did a lot of memory testing at primary schools in the greater Manchester area, at that time with both four-year-olds and 11-year-olds and comparing the development of visual and auditory working memory. Um, so that was actually the, the first published paper. I think this, the second one is, if I can continue a little bit on that, but I'll sure. leave it at that then. Um, the second one is, is really the one that I was solely responsible for, and that was a paper that I published in Cognitive Science in 1993, and it was part of my PhD thesis. Uh, that was about how experts can or cannot transfer their expertise from one area to another when the areas are still somewhat related. Um, so in this case, it was about designing experiments in areas that you are familiar with versus areas that you are unfamiliar with. So I think those were the really two you know, first papers. The one in 1988, I did not contribute in writing a whole lot to, and the, the other one I did write by myself. 
Well, the first one, interviewing children, sounds fun. Was that was that or not interviewing, but but running, having having them do uh, various memory tests. Was that um, was that fun, or was it difficult, or both, or? Yeah, um, you know, there were there were memory tests. So what we actually did was um, present those children with um, um, with pictures of objects. Um, for a brief time and then turned them down. And then so you got like either three pictures, you know, which was the most that a four-year-old could do. And for 11-year-olds, we went up to, I think, five or maybe even seven uh, pictures, you know, the typical typical kind of memory span. Um, but they were, they were pictures of objects that, that they had to look at briefly and then had to recall in order in the order they were presented. Um, it was mostly fun, but um, we experimented a lot with the task. And I recall one particular task um, that we tried that was kind of a rule induction task. Um, and it was it was quite complicated, actually. So you presented a couple of um, uh, pictures, and then the child had to pick up the rule according to which the pictures were presented. And I remember we tried it out with a couple of four-year-olds, but they all started to cry. So um, we, 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 we quit that procedure very quickly. <laughs> it was just too difficult for them. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so that sounds like very kind of uh, traditional experimental research, although it is field research. You're going out and... and or, or well, I mean, there there is some uh, some kind of naturalistic element to that, perhaps. Um, it's you're going to the primary schools where they, where they are. Um, but then this next study you mentioned in 1993, where now you're really thinking about expertise. Yeah. Uh, was that um, was that still a traditional experimental design, or were you doing any kind of cognitive field methods there? Well. I, I wanted to, and so I wanted to study expertise, and um, I was already working at TNO at that time. So I did my PhD um, during my work at TNO. So you know, it also took took a few years longer than the usual four years that we have in the Netherlands for a PhD. So um, I started working in '86 at TNO, and then you know I started doing my PhD, thinking about a topic, and I wanted to do something with expertise because it was also related to the work I was doing at that time at TNO, which was about um, knowledge elicitation for expert systems. Um, so I got to think about, well, if I want to study expertise, what area of expertise can I study? And um, at that time, well, there were maybe one or two projects that I did in 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 some fields, but they didn't lend themselves very well for a PhD, I thought. So I thought, well, we have a lot of researchers here at TNO and, you know, all my colleagues, they're all experts in, in designing experiments. So, you know, we were still a very kind of traditional um, institute at that time, you might say, at least, I mean, in terms of doing doing experiments, lab experiments. And they, they could be either psychology experiments, they, but there were also many other um, fields of expertise and, and fields of science involved, like um, visual perception and auditory perception and thermal physiology and, and so stuff like that. 
But I thought, well, if I can ask all of my colleagues to participate in my experiments, then, you know, I have them all at hand and I can, I can do experiments with them. Um, and what I did is I presented them with a particular research question just on a piece of paper, like, um, suppose you want to investigate the effects of A on B, um, how would you do that? How would you design an experiment to test that? And then I had them think aloud. Um, so it was sort of naturalistic decision making, but it was very much influenced by my experience that I had at Carnegie Mellon University um, just the, the year before I started working at TNO, uh, which was very much dominated by the um, the verbal protocol tradition of, of Erickson and Simon and, and the thinking aloud um, method. So I had all my colleagues think aloud while they designed experiments. And the nice thing was because there were so many different disciplines involved that I could give all the participants questions about different disciplines. So I gave a psychology expert also something about um, audiology, which they you know never would have done otherwise. And so I could test whether and what part of their expertise would actually transfer to the different field of research. So yeah, kind kind of handy M, but not not really a cognitive. Well, I did some kind of task analysis, I must say. I I started out one one of the chapters in my PhD thesis was a task analysis of what it means to design an experiment. So in that sense, yes. Some early, some early NDM kind of research. Yeah, and the yeah. other component that feels very NDM uh, centric is is you're asking people about um, um, their their world of work, so, you know, their their expertise, which is um, you know very different from asking school kids to do an artificial memory task. Oh um, yeah, oh yeah, actually, that's completely true. I mean, you know, this was really their job. To, to design experiments. To th the only thing is they had to, th to think aloud. So I did not do like a, what you would later call a, um, a cognitive task analysis in the sense of being a direct interview. Um, so I was very much uh, relying on, on verbal protocols and on analyzing those verbal protocols. That was the main, the main vehicle that I used for my PhD thesis. Sure. And so did you, did you say that you were at Carnegie Mellon? Did you, did you uh, work with Herb Simon? Yes. Yes, I did actually. Um, he was, he was of course still around there at that time. I took classes with him. Um, so I, I must say, you know, he was, he has been one of the biggest influences on my, my thinking um, still is. Um, and so I also took classes with John Anderson, and um, we also worked with um, with Marshall Just primarily and, and Pat Carpenter. Um, so I did research with Marshall Just on um, com developing computational models of um, people taking uh, intelligence tests. At that time, we studied the Raven uh, progressive matrices as an intelligence test for the for the G, the general intelligence component. And um, so we we try to develop um, computational models for how people solve those those problems in that intelligence test. Yeah. 
That is so interesting. So I actually, I was in Pittsburgh. I was going to Pitt, which is just down the road from Carnegie Mellon in 1987, 88. Uh, so we weren't in Pittsburgh at the same time, were we? No, I was there um, just after I finished my master's in psychology. And then I went to uh, Pittsburgh in 85 and went back in 86 to start at TNO. I see. So we just missed each other. That's yeah, right. we just missed each other by, <laughs> by one or two years. Right, right. But I, I, I went to Pitt a couple of times. Yeah, took some classes with um, Walter Schneider. Oh, yeah. Wow, small world. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and so um, I think I met you at the NDM meeting in Dayton in 94. Um and so I'm wondering how you found your way there. I think you were the only person from TNO who came. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, the way I, I came there actually was that I had heard about um, Gary Klein um, through my colleague um, at TNO, Peter Essence. And Peter Essence at that time was involved um, in a, I think, a one or two NATO research study groups. And um, so I think through his contacts also with Jan Kennenbauers and, and probably others in that field, um, these were the early days, I think, of also of the Tatmas project. Yes. Um, he, he knew, or at least knew the name of Gary Klein, and so we talked about it and he said, well, there is, you know, there's an upcoming conference and, and maybe you should contact Gary Klein. So, so I remember emailing Gary with um, three suggestions for a paper that I could present during the 1994 um, Dayton conference. One of them being about my, my PhD research, actually. Um, the other one was on research that I had done for the Navy on uh, naval damage control. And also at that time, I was working with um, the river pilots in Rotterdam, um, which was really a task analysis on how they um, conned the ships in and out of the harbor of Rotterdam. Um, so I made those three suggestions to Gary, and I remember him emailing back that, I think he found the one on naval damage control the most interesting. And then, so I submitted a paper on that. And um, yeah, that's how it came to be. And I went to Dayton to present that paper. And it was also published in one of the NDM books coming out of that conference. Wow. And, and since then, you have been uh, kind of one of the proponents of NDM research through your whole career. Yeah, I've... Um, I missed a few, I think, but um, and it all depends on whether you're um, whether there was funding available to travel, etc. Um, so, yeah, I've, I, yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Sorry, I, I was just going to say you you actually hosted a meeting, which um, we know is a heroic effort. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I I did the one in two thousand and five in in Amsterdam. Um, yeah, it's um, it's um, it's a lot of effort to do, but very rewarding, I think. Um, yeah, slightly. I think what also you know was aligned to this, and what helped a lot was that I became the uh, the chairman for a NATO group, a NATO research study group on cognitive task analysis, around 
this early time, 94, 95. And one of the members of that group was um, from the United States, um, was Susan Chipman, um, who was at um, the Office of Naval Research at that time and, of course, was a big sponsor for all kinds of cognitive science research. Um, and so we ended up together organizing a meeting um, in Washington, D.C., on cognitive task analysis in 97. And the book that you mentioned in your introduction, the cognitive task analysis book that was published in 2000, actually came out of that meeting in 97. So it was, I mean, it was slightly separate from the from the NDM tracks, but, but many of the researchers who were also at NDM uh, presenting work on, on cognitive task analysis also were at that meeting in 97 in Washington, uh, D.C. Uh, not just the regular NDM bunch, but there was also like other researchers that would not otherwise maybe attend um, NDM conferences such as, um, well, Kim Ficento was there for one. Um, he presented one of his, his later chapters on, on his cognitive work analysis book. Earl Hunt was there, um, so many other people. Yeah, that's been a very influential book. That that was an amazing project that you brought all those people together with different perspectives to to write about this this topic that I, I feel like at that time people were just kind of figuring out what do we mean by cognitive task analysis? What is cognitive task analysis and what is not cognitive task analysis? Uh, and so that that book was very influential. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so it dated I think, you know, the work we did with, with the NATO Research Study Group and um, dated back, to, as I said, to the mid-90s. And there wasn't a whole lot around at that time. Um, so we we did a lot of study, literature study on what was around. And I, I seem to remember, I'm, you know, I'm, don't ask me exactly about the, the dates of the, the papers at this moment, but I think the term probably dates back to the... Well, mid eighties, you 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 would probably know better than I do, but um, so you know certainly the work by by Emily Roth and David Woods were probably some of the first instances in which it was actually used and mentioned. Um, but so in the mid nineties, there was not a whole lot of tradition at that time in in cognitive task analysis, and there were also very very different traditions. So. Actually, there was like the more cognitive systems engineering tradition, um, also represented by David Woods or by by Kim Ficenta, for instance. Um, uh, there was the tradition also by um, the cognitive modeling tradition, with which Susan Chipman, of course, was more familiar um, because she funded a lot of research by uh, people like uh, David Kiras, for instance, who also was at the Washington meeting. Um, and so also from that tradition, there were some people um, using the term cognitive um, task analysis um, because actually in order to understand what people are doing and how they solve problems in that problem-solving tradition, you also need to know their, their problem space. And so cognitive task analysis was a way of um, describing the problem space. Actually, I mean, this goes back to the work by Newell and Simon, 
which they did in in human problem solving in seventy two, um, which actually you know describes um, how to how to develop and describe those problem spaces. So that was like a very early early sort of cognitive task analysis. And then of course there was the third tradition, which probably had you know well it had started with Gary Klein, of course, doing his research. Um, in the mid '80s, on the firefighters, and um, and so yeah, I think those three traditions came together during that Dayton, or sorry, during that Washington D.C. meeting in which we organized um, around our NATO group. So yeah, Martina, kind of listen to you um, talk about methods and interviewing, and and also listening to the. A project you mentioned earlier about damage control, but I'm also thinking about those kids that you made cry um, back uh, in the early days. And it's, it's kind of, uh, I'm starting to wonder if, if you might have a perception on or experience with or, or suggestions about, you know, we, we often talk about these task analysis and work analysis methods and, uh, and solving problems and decision making. But the fact of the matter is a lot of us have worked with and worked in domains, worked with experts in domains where they're dealing with life and death situations, very personally traumatic incidents that they're trying to recall. I'm wondering if you've had any experience, um, you mentioned the damage control, that, that certainly could be a, a domain where uh, the recall of, of, of traumatic events might find its way into the interview. Uh, and, and just do you have any experience with folks who have, who have gotten emotional or who uh, in their retelling of, of incidents have uh, you know, not really been able to focus? Or uh, I'm just wondering, because you had that early experience with the kids crying and you sort of just changed paths, but you can't really do that in an interview, right? You, you, you're sort of there and, and the conversation needs to go forward. Have you had any experiences like that? And do you have any suggestions for people about how to handle those kinds of interviews? Not a whole lot, I must say. Um, I'm No, I mean, the damage control at that time, um, that was, you know, that, that was really kind of, kind of early. Um, so the, the experience, the actual experience that the damage control officers had was, was kind of limited. Um, we know, of course, I mean, later when I was in 2000, when I was at the Naval Air Warfare Center in Orlando, um, we, of course, had the, the bombing of the, um, um, the, the USS Cole, mm. which was like an early attack by Al-Qaeda on, on a naval warship. And so that's an, you know, kind of an instance of, of the ensuing damage control. But of course, I didn't interview um, those people. But I can imagine there would be um, traumatic um, experiences there. Right. Um, I I don't recall that many really traumatic um, incidents, to be honest, in during interviews. No. Right. Yeah, I, I don't think you know. Depending on what domain you're working in, you're going to see more or less of this. But um, I, I do think that's something our community could talk a bit more about um, and just you know be open about and. And maybe give some younger researchers guidance um, for that sort of thing. So, and, and you work with younger researchers uh, in, in a variety of capacities. Um, and so I'm wondering, is that something that you address with them? Or uh, is that something that you uh, purposefully try to get them to think about before they're heading into uh, their field work? Um, 
Yeah, sure. I mean, um, I, interviewing techniques are important. Um, and so I, I teach a class particularly for more um, technically oriented uh, students um, in a, in, in an, it's called interaction technology. It's a master in interaction technology. And one of the classes that I teach there is on various techniques uh, for, for doing user center design kind of studies. And of course, interviewing is one is one of the aspects in that. So it's not, necessarily related to um, to experts or na- maybe naturalistic decision-making per se, but at least um, interviewing techniques are important in, in general also for those kinds of, um, for those kinds of students. Um, I do, well, I do remember now that I thought about it a little bit more, um, we did a project once on, on fratricide um, mm-hmm. So uh, shooting, shooting your own people, um, okay. and we we did interviews, but we actually outsourced the actual interviewing um, because um, they were interviews with veterans from from a long time ago. So um, veterans that fought in Indonesia actually just after the Second World War for for the Dutch uh, forces then and um, we had access to them but only through other people who were you know allowed to and to interview them so but we we did set up an interview protocol and we did but together with anthropologists sort of devised a way of um, reliving those memories again um, in a kind of vivid fashion but of course, not maybe not too not too vivid that it would be um, traumatic. Uh, but so yeah, there are certain techniques that we that we came up with, like um, imagining certain sounds or, or smells or or the kinds of clothes that you wore at that time. Or so bringing people back into an actual situation. Um, would help them relive those 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 memories of of shooting, you know, their their fellow soldiers, and mm-hmm. so, yeah, we got some extensive interviews out of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, so the technique was to uh, sort of introduce a uh, a sensory experience as a way to help the recall. Is that was that the idea? Yes, yes, as a way, because, because it was, of course, a long time ago for them. Um, I, when was it? Well, it must have, well, at least, well, no, I mean, it must have been 60 years ago or something. So, I mean, these people were, of course, in their 70s, 80s. Um, and then you try to recall something like 60 years ago. So um, it's an interesting aspect of, you know, what is called like... Um, the, the, the critical event um, interview or it's a critical event, but it's a one that is a long time ago. So you need to sort of bring people back into their right uh, state of mind to, to get those memories back in an, and also in, of course, in a valid fashion as far as possible, which is a challenge in itself. Very interesting. So Jan Martin, what's the most exciting project you're working on right now? 
We do a project for the uh, for the Dutch Navy um, that is on rotational crewing concepts. It's something that the U.S. Navy has um, also experienced with and has experimented with. Um, so it actually means that you decouple the crew from the actual ship they're on. And so you can have a particular ship longer out in the mission area. And then the crew rotates back and forth. And so different crews rotate across that single ship. So the advantage is that you can have that ship in the mission area for longer, for longer periods of time without that particular ship having to sail back um, to the to the harbor um, and then another ship having to sail back into the mission area. So it, that's an exciting project um, because, um, of course, you you need to talk to to experts um, at, about that. But there are very few experts in the sense that um, not a whole lot of experience has been um, gained with that yet. Um, but it's um, it's it's exciting because it involves all different aspects. Of, of what the Navy is doing. I mean, it, inv- it has implications for almost their entire way of operating. It has implications for, for training. So, for instance, if you would have a full warship trainer in which you can train a lot of the things that you would otherwise do on a ship, um, then you would have more ships available um, than if you would not have a trainer like that. And if you have more ships available, then it's easier to have more ships out in the mission area. So we're actually going, you know, all the way down to, um, to devising certain, certain schemes and plans in time of if you have four vessels in a particular class, when and where would what particular vessel be and where would each crew be and what would they be doing would they be at home recuperating? Would they be training? Would they be um, on the ship? Would they be doing maintenance? So there are all kinds of new maintenance concepts that have to be taken into account here. So it actually, if you move in that direction, it has an impact on on the entire way of working of a of a navy. So that's you know that's a very exciting project that I that I work on right now. There are so many interesting pieces of that. I was thinking um, just the idea of rotating crews in and out. Do you, do you rotate out the entire crew or a few crew members at a time? Uh, because there must be some sort of cost in terms of handoff and you know knowledge of, of what's going on now. Um, so yeah, super- exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So all these kinds of questions come into play. Um, so how do you how would you do the handover? It's called handover takeover. Um, it's the term they use. But so if if one if if there is a crew coming onto the ship and there is a crew leaving, you would need to have some kind of handover takeover. Um, actually, what what we're thinking about now is that it you know would be best to change the the entire crew rather than than part of the crew in order to um, maintain a kind of team uh, team cohesion and team integrity and also some kind of shared mental models. So 
in terms you have all these all these team concepts and cognitive concepts playing a role here in this new kind of of design and also issues of ownership for instance um one of the things you know they always tell us is yeah it's like having a rental car from a company and if you leave it behind messy then the next one will also leave it behind even more messy but if you take care of your rental car and you fill it up and you clean it out if you hand it in then the next person will probably also be likely to do the same um, or not or not um, they may think well that's that's nice thank you but um, so all these kinds of things of like do they still feel a sense of ownership for a ship if they are not part of that ship if they part of their identity is I'm a member of that I'm a crew of that ship and, uh, and now that's not the case anymore they're just belonging together um, as, a, as a team but the ship they're actually going to is different yeah so many so many interesting layers to that that is fascinating work yeah, right. So, um, and also it has implications for the ship design. So, for instance, um, if those ships are slightly different, um, that of course makes it harder to take over or to switch among ships. Um, of course, I mean, ships are not being built at the same time, they come into existence like maybe a couple of years apart. And then with midlife upkeeps, etc., cetera, um, software is being um, upgraded. And so the ships don't necessarily have the same kind of um, software upgrades or, or equipment. And one ship could be ahead of the other. And that makes it difficult and more challenging for crews to, to switch across ships. So um, there is an a requirement also for the design of uh, for ships to be as similar as possible. That's also one of the things uh, that we learned. Sure, that makes sense. And even if they are very similar, it just it seems like if this is your ship, you know all of its quirks, all of the little uh, you know anomalies about that particular ship and how it operates. And and if you're moving from, from ship to ship, you may not have that kind of deep knowledge about the technology you're interacting with yes yes exactly and and of course i mean every ship has its has its quirks then and but then you would have to hand that over you as part of the kind of transition phase to the other crew you would have to tell them of course um what is wrong with that particular ship at that particular time if anything is wrong or what particular quirks are but these these concepts are not new, of course. I mean, in in we have the same kind of um, issue in medical teams with handovers. Um, we have the same kind of issue in in industry when you have different crews taking over from each other in shifts. Um, I was at a steel factory once where um, they said, "Well, you know, the second crew they would take over." from the first crew and they would say, well, as soon as we take over, we will just reset everything and we will just start again and work with our own settings because that's that's the way we do things here. That's the, that's the way we're used to things. 
So they would change settings, um, for instance. Um, of course, uh, many times it's not possible, but... Um, and, and we also know, f- know from accident research that many things go wrong precisely at those handover moments, for instance, in, in shipping, in, in merchant marine shipping, for instance, um, if you change every four hours or every six hours, it's very important to do a good handover there as well. And if, you, um, if you're tired, um, you don't tell everything properly, uh, you know, things are bound to go wrong. So there are many aspects in cognitive engineering and, and human factors engineering that, that play a role in this particular project as well. Absolutely. Right. That sounds fascinating. So I wonder, um, looking forward, if, um, if there are um, uh, particular goals or directions you're hoping to take your work. So for like um, like um, future work, um, yeah. Um, so I work a lot with, um, I mean, both at the University of Trento with PhD students, also of course master students or bachelor students. But PhD students, of course, sort of give you the advantage of of doing somewhat longer term research. And so I have two PhD students that recently started. Um, so these are two areas that uh, we'll be working on in the coming year in the coming years. And the first one um, with Lida David um, is continuing work that I did over the past few years on changes in team communication patterns in novel or demanding situations. And that also entails ways to automatically record team communication patterns and ways to provide feedback to teams about the way they communicate. And a second uh, PhD project that I've just started with Serena Dorestein is developing resilient, complex cyber-physical systems that are equipped to keep supporting and collaborating with humans throughout the changes that the fourth industrial revolution will enable. So we will do cognitive field studies in, for instance, the car manufacturing industry, to see how implementation of cyber-physical systems uh, takes place over time there. Um, And cyber-physical systems are are a kind of a networked system in which data and information are constantly exchanged and algorithms influence and determine both machine and human behavior. So um, those are two lines of research that I will pursue in the next um, four years. I'm also conducting research on collaboration at a distance, for instance, troubleshooting on naval ships, how to do that from ashore. Um, Of course, that also relates back to that rotational crewing uh, project that I just talked about. Because if a particular ship is further um, out in a mission area and you can't return to your naval base, you need to do more troubleshooting on the ship itself, or you would have to fly in uh, maintenance crews, of course. Um, I also do research on supporting multi-team systems, collaborating with various um, automated systems, uh, research on semi-automated driving and how to explain the car's actions to the driver. So that's on explainability and transparency of automated systems. 
And uh, I will also be doing research on supporting cybersecurity professionals and banks in dealing with uh, malicious cyber attacks. So actually quite broad range of, of projects that I'll be working on in the next year or you know four years in case of, of the PhD uh, projects. Yeah, these are all very kind of big societal issues. Um, I, that phrase you used, uh, complex cyber physical systems, I am not familiar with that. So you said these are networked systems, and then you offered cars an example as an example. Can you tell me more about, uh, yeah, what what is a, a cyber physical system? Yeah, well, um, so it allows you to to exchange um, data and information much more um, than you do now. So. Um, that's the the cyber part is to, I mean, it's called cyber, but it doesn't have so much to do with um, cybersecurity as well as that it, it, it introduces um, network systems and algorithms in traditional um, car manufacturing uh, industries, which is called the, the Industry 4.0 uh, revolution. Um, but it allows also the operators to work more with data and information and, and be more aware of, um, of what is going on and also to give them more authority to um, make decisions quicker. And so, I mean, you can, it's, 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 it's a form, of course, of, of human-machine teaming on human-machine collaboration. Um, but these ideas and these traditional kind of industries are quite new and they haven't been implemented widely. So um, that's going to be a challenge. And, and what, we're, what we want to do in this project is to see if they're introducing that, how, how does that work over time? How does, how, what are the best ways to introduce these, um, these systems into their industry. And so that's what my PhD student wants to wants to investigate using concepts from cognitive systems engineering, etc. But in these kinds of industries, they are very, very new concepts. So I think we, you know, we, we can do a lot of new things there. Very interesting. So I'm wondering, just to pull that thread a bit, are, are there domains uh, or maybe even customers where you think an NDM perspective might be quite useful, but you've you've kind of struggled to get traction to get other people excited about uh, what this kind of perspective can bring? That's a good question, um, because, you know, a lot of the work that we do at TNO actually lends itself very well to an NDM perspective. Um, so I've been involved in many in many different areas, um, varying from 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 the navy, uh, the army, uh, to to medicine, medical teamwork, um, to to the police or the the firefighters, um, to harbor pilots, to um, that work with forensic um, analysts. Um, so there are just so many areas and. I think I've always, you know, been successful in, in convincing people, um, well, not so much of, of the value of NDM because, um, you know, they, as customers, they, they trust that you have the right methods 
Um, and so I don't need to convince them really of the value of, of NDM as such. Um, I need to convince them that I will um, bring them something that that they need or, you know, to, to solve their problem. Uh, and yeah, so it, it, it has not always been, not always worked um, as, as maybe as well as I would have hoped uh, in all cases, but in many different areas, people are sort of quite receptive, I think, to an NDM kind of approach because it, it respects um, the experts. It shows respect for the experts and as long as you do that, then people are are willing to go to go along with you. Um, I remember well one project, um, but that sort of proves the point in an opposite way. Is that with the harbor pilots in Rotterdam? Um, that was in the early '90s, so I was I was kind of young and trying out various things as well then. I think, but um, we used a lot of different techniques, and one of them was to go with the the harbor pilots on board of the ships and you know i had them again i had them think aloud so i stripped them to a, a cassette uh, tape recorder and i had them think aloud all the time which that worked perfectly all right um but then i also wanted to have them do some um limited information tasks or or I think I was influenced by a particular paper by Robert Hoffman at, at that time or a constrained information uh, task. Um, and so I had like 10 or 15 pilots uh, come to their main office on a particular uh, day and I think they had even had to take some free time for that. And then I presented them all kinds of sort of constrained <laughs> information uh, tasks um, so, for instance, I showed them video. I had also taken video from the bridge of the ship um, from a particular perspective, and I showed them video and then also had them do particular things, think aloud or do other kinds of um, strange stuff. And I remember many of them just viol- violently opposing these very strange in their eyes tasks that I gave them. And, and they, you know, almost at the point of refusing to cooperate with me. Um, so that was a that was kind of a painful experience, um, I must say that. Um, but it kind of proves the point that as if it, I mean, interviewing is very accepted and having people think aloud is not that difficult. But if you bring them out of their comfort zone, if you have them do things that are unnatural to them, then they then they get really, um, um, well, r- reluctant to, to cooperate. That's what I experienced um, a couple of times. That is a great story and a great point. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's not to say you should never do um, limited information tasks again. Um, I don't think that that's the, mor- the morale of the story per se. But... You, I should probably, in retrospect, have introduced it better to them, and I think that would have solved some of the problems. Um, but I, as I said, I was quite young at that time, and um, well, you learn from your mistakes. Sure. I mean, I feel like every interview I've ever done, when I read the transcript, I'm saying to myself, "Why didn't I ask this follow-up question?" 
um, almost every data collection I've done afterwards, I can think of how I might have done it a little better. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. the nature of this work. Yeah. So I'm wondering, I know you've worked in a lot of different uh, domains, but if you think back over your career, which project has been the most rewarding to you? Um, yeah, um, that that's undoubtedly a project on uh, structured troubleshooting that I did in the '90s, and that was also for the for the Dutch Navy, by the way. That was a very rewarding project, and I think one of the most successful ones um, that I did um, ever. It started out in the early '90s with the Navy being interested in applications of knowledge-based systems. Um, uh, so where have we heard that before, right? Um, <laughs> artificial intelligence uh, these days. But, at, I mean, it's not a new thing. Um, I was working on expert systems on artificial intelligence in by the late 80s and early 90s a lot. And and so also the Navy, they started out, well, maybe by, by asking, well, what, what, Potential benefit is there from by from knowledge based systems in in trying to troubleshoot, but then it moved very quickly to another question, and that had to do with um, training troubleshooting by um, corporals in in the navy. So, um, and our project officer that we had at that time moved from one particular place to the to the school where they trained and. Um, he had known us from our work in, in knowledge-based systems, and, and now he was interested in improving the education of troubleshooting because the Navy noticed that when those people, the corporals who had just taken a particular class in troubleshooting in a particular system, so, I mean, there are like dozens of courses. Each particular system has its own course. Um, they noticed that when they came to the ship, their efficiency in troubleshooting was actually quite low. Um, so they could solve very few problems, or at least not as many as they had hoped they would be able to. So they came to us and asked, well, can you improve the, the education and the courses that we have in troubleshooting? And there were a couple of, of things to consider. One is to, um, of course, improve the, the efficiency and effectiveness. Well, at least, uh, first of all, the effectiveness of troubleshooting, but secondly, also the efficiency in the sense of, can you train them faster? Um, can you train them in less time? Um, so that became a challenge. I mean, so the, the, the question now was, can we arrive at better troubleshooting results in less time? And so, And if so, how would you do that? So we worked for like many years um, all, until about the late 90s. So almost for eight years, I think, in a series of projects, um, we innovated their training and we came up with different approaches, with a completely different approach to how to train troubleshooting. And um, it, was, it was based on two ideas. Um, we observed expert troubleshooters, we observed novices, we noticed the differences between the two, we noticed that the experts had a structured approach to troubleshooting, and we also noticed that the experts had mental representations of the system that they were troubleshooting in at various levels of abstraction. 
which novices didn't have. So we thought that both elements were important, both the structured approach as well as the um, the nature of the representations at various levels of abstraction. And we developed new kinds of representations for, for various systems. They weren't there. I mean, they had particular representations, but they were at very low levels of detail as delivered by the, the companies that had um, designed and, and engineered the systems. So, I mean, they have company kind of documentation with the systems, but they are at a very low level. So not very helpful for, for troubleshooters. Um, and so we had to develop these kinds of intermediate level representations um, for um, functional representations for the troubleshooters. I mean, if I had read at that time, I must say in retrospect, the work of Rasmussen a little better than I did, um, I would have made some more progress, I think, because what we really did, I think, in hindsight is kind of reinvent the abstraction hierarchy that Rasmussen had already developed also for troubleshooting. But anyway, um, but we added the structured approach to troubleshooting. And so we trained both. And so we, what we also did was we conducted controlled experiments in which we... Um, could demonstrate to the Navy that with the new approach that we had developed and which we actually implemented in classes. Uh, so the students that came out of those classes um, that contained our new approach then actually solved almost twice as many problems um, uh, compared to students that took the old classes, the old approach to troubleshooting. So it went up from 45% to about 90% correct. And also, um, as a result of, of the way we structured the classes, um, they could do it with like a third less in time. So about in, in about two thirds of the time that they originally took. So the Navy took up that approach and sort of reorganized their entire engineering education, all the, all the classes that they taught um, at their schools were being reorganized according to the concepts that we had developed. So I think, in, you know, that's, that's one of the most successful projects that we ever did. There are so many amazing things about that project you described. Um, but one, one thing I'm latching onto because I'm struggling with this in some of my work right now is that you were able to do a, a really effective evaluation I think in, in terms of, of assessing the impact of training, it's really, really hard to do in so many domains. Um, and, and lots of times people, um, the most you're able to do is, is, is get a sense from the instructors and the students that it feels worthwhile and they're more confident. But you were actually able to show some changes in performance. Um, yeah, def definitely. And of course, we were very lucky because, I mean, we could have many... Uh, many, many naval students, as it were, as our participants. Um, but they were really, I mean, really um, good kind of, of, of simulations of their actual work. Um, so they were not laboratory, sterile kind of troubleshooting tasks. What we actually did, the Navy at that time had all their systems, they had duplicates of on, on the shore in the school. 
of the actual system. So what we did was we planted faults in the actual system, then had um, a participant come and we just said to them, well, you know, it's standing in front of a computer, for instance, this is the computer, there is something wrong. Someone from the operational services now has said to you, uh, it doesn't work anymore. So go and find, go and troubleshoot. And then we had them think aloud and we recorded every step they took. And like it took about an hour, we gave them an hour for each of the problems that we gave them. So four problems, four hours in total. And we had think aloud protocols and we also had some assessment of their knowledge through knowledge tests that we gave them. And so it was a very comprehensive kind of evaluation, yes, with with sufficient numbers of participants. And I think that was really um, influential also in changing the Navy's opinion because, you know, we could really demonstrate with data that our approach were better than the original existing approach. Yeah, that's an amazing project. So yeah, Martin, you, you've sort of touched on a bunch of uh, sister disciplines to NDM. I'm wondering if we could get you to think about if you if you meet a perfect stranger uh, that you've never uh, spoken with, but they claim to practice NDM. Uh, I'm wondering if if you could give them one question uh, to find out if they do indeed practice NDM. What would you ask? Yes, I would. I would ask. Do you respect the authenticity of what your practitioner is telling you? I think that would sum up, um, you know, whether they would be doing NDM because, um, well, first of all, of course, I'm assuming there is a practitioner. So like an expert, um, that is actually the the object of your study. Um, but I think it's really about respecting authenticity. It's respecting what um, what the practitioner is is telling you. So it is also um, it would also include um, respect for um, for cognitive task analysis, respect for introspection, what people tell you, um, not distrusting that straight away. Um, so. Respecting authenticity of what practitioners are telling you would be would be my kind of yeah sort of touchstone of of whether they would be doing real NDM. Excellent answer. That is a great response. All right, so we have one last question. I'm going to ask you to tell us two truths about yourself and one lie, and then both Brian and I are going to try to guess which one is the lie. Okay. So the first one, I met my future wife during a show jumping contest in which we both participated with our horses. Needless to say, she won while I came in third. <laughs> Wait, which part of that might be the lie? Is it that you met or that you came in third? <laughs> <laughs> it's up to you. So the second one, um, my wife and I called our first pet, which was a guinea pig, uh, Big Big Track, and it was named after a small robotic programmable device that was used for experimental purposes at Carnegie Mellon University during our stay there in 1985-1986. And the third one, 
I ran my first ultra marathon, the Eiger Trail in the Swiss Alps, when I was well in my 50s. This is the most complex set we've ever had on this program. <laughs> it's so true. Are you going to go first, Brian, or you want me to? Um, I am, because I do not believe the guinea pig story. There's just way too many details there. I, uh, I don't believe the show jumping contest story. Okay. Can you tell me why? Laura? Um, no, I'm just guessing. <laughs> I mean, it's completely believable to me that you did an ultra marathon. Yes. Um, and it's also, you seem nerdy enough to name a pet after a, a, a piece of technology. I, I could see that. <laughs> yeah, you're right, Laura. Um, so the, the first one is not is not correct. Although we we did do um, we did do horse riding, not show jumping though, but dressage. Um, but I didn't meet my my future wife during show jumping, during horse riding. I met, I met her actually during uh, our psychology study. So that was not that was not correct. Uh, Brian, the big track thing. It's true enough. There was a device called Big Track at Carnegie Mellon, and they did experiments with that. And it's even published in Cognitive Science, I think. Um, so, and we called our first pet after Big Track because my my wife was was also with me during uh, our stay in Carnegie Mellon. Fantastic! I'm <laughs> terrible at this game, but uh, these are bringing out great stories from people. They are, yeah. So, thank you, Jan Martin, for speaking with us today. It has been so nice to talk with you. Thank you. And so on that note, thank you for joining us for the NDM podcast. I'm Laura Militello. And I'm Brian Moon. Please learn more about naturalistic decision-making and where to follow us by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org.